And Lord, as we now come to Your Word, we remember that Your Word is profitable for reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. That we may be equipped for every good work. And so we pray, O Lord, that You would use Your Word to do Your work in us. To make us more like Christ. To break us away from the world and to draw us more to Yourself. We pray for our children, both those inside the womb and outside the womb. And we pray, O oh Lord, for their salvation in Your time. We pray for our parents who are discipling those kids, and we pray that they would be patient and loving and Christ-like, and that they would be faithful to preach the gospel regularly to their children. We pray that they would, uh, they would be models of Christ's love to them. And, uh, Lord, we pray for uh, our parents and their marriages as well. Thank you for the marriages in our church. Thank you for the way that they are a picture of the gospel. Uh, we pray for strength in our marriages, O oh Lord. We pray that you would use this time as we study your word to conform us more and more into the image of Christ and to give us comfort in these troubling times. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to Psalm 35. The first Sunday of every month, we go through a psalm, uh, and we are, uh, we've, we've skipped ahead a few times, a couple times, but we find ourselves in Psalm 35 today, which I think, if you look at the chaos around the world, this is such a timely psalm. This past week, I saw a meme, you know, a, a picture with a caption that somebody captioned. It. It's a doctor with his prescription note, or, you know, his little prescription sheet. Uh, and the person is asking, Doctor, what, what you got for me? I, my soul's in distress. And the, the prescription is the Psalms. Uh, psalm 35 is a, is a great one for times like this. This is a psalm about oppression and affliction, and as much as, uh, as much as the church around the world is facing that these days, it's good for us to study the psalms. They are um, they're like a balm for the soul. So we'll be looking at Psalm 35 today, which is going to remind us of something that's really important, and that is that life for the righteous can be very difficult at times. Sometimes it's more difficult than others. Sometimes it's extremely difficult. And the reason is, ultimately, because the sinfulness that corrupts and dominates fallen man's thinking and fallen man's very being ensures that the righteous will always have trouble will always face opposition in this life. The person who faces no opposition from the world very easily grows comfortable with the world, very easily grows comfortable with this life. And he simply will not lose for heaven the way that he would if he regularly faced afflictions and opposition. And thus, on one hand, we should thank God for our afflictions, for difficult times, we should understand that it is a grace of God to face opposition because it makes us hungry for heaven. The great Puritan author and theologian Thomas Watson put it this way. He said, quote, Afflictions quicken our pace on the way to heaven. 
It is with us as children sent on an errand. If they meet with apples or flowers, by the way, they linger and are in no great hurry to get home. But if anything frightens them, then they run with all the speed they can to their father's house. So in prosperity, we gather the apples and flowers and do not give much thought to heaven. But if troubles begin to arise and the times grow frightful, then we make more haste to heaven. End quote. In other words, opposition by the unrighteous. The troubles that we face in this world. They're afflictions, but they're not without purpose. They're not without purpose. Worldly afflictions have a way of preparing our hearts for heaven's comfort. So there's one sense in which we can thank God for the, for the afflictions that we endure. And there are afflictions of every flavor. All kinds of different afflictions. But at the same time, we should realize that, that afflictions are not just physical in nature, but there is definitely a spiritual aspect to them. In fact, I'd argue that they are predominantly spiritual. And when we're talking about spiritual afflictions, we're talking about spiritual warfare. And whenever we realize that we are in the midst of a spiritual battle, what do we do? The right answer is we draw near to God and we trust in Him. And that's easier said than done, I realize, but that's what we're supposed to do. Draw near to Him, calling out to Him in prayer for protection and for sovereign provision. And this is where imprecatory psalms come into play. If you don't know what an imprecatory psalm is, an imprecatory psalm is a psalm in which the author calls down judgment from God upon his enemies. He's calling down vengeance from heaven. He invites calamity and destruction and God's just wrath against sin against his enemies. So today we're going to be looking at Psalm 35, which is an imprecatory psalm. Uh, David's pace on the journey to heaven was being quickened by the afflictions that he faced by his enemies. We know that David faced many, many afflictions throughout his life. But we don't know exactly which affliction that's recorded motivated or, or drove him to write this psalm. Or it's possible also that whatever the affliction was that he was facing when he wrote this psalm isn't actually recorded in the Scriptures. After all, the Scriptures aren't about David. They're about Jesus. But whatever the circumstances were that drove David to write this psalm, David teaches us here in Psalm 35 how to respond to afflictions that we face that are caused by the wicked. The point of this psalm is that we must not seek vengeance ourselves upon those who afflict us or who assail us. Rather, we must draw near to God, asking Him to vindicate us, remembering that even Jesus Christ, God's only Son, faced times of severe, severe difficulty, severe oppression, severe affliction. So before we begin, we would do well to remember what Jesus said on the night of His betrayal in John chapter 15, verses 18-20, to where He said this to His disciples, If the world hates you, know that it has hated Me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. 
Remember the word that I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Notice that that is universal. There's not even one maybe in there. They will persecute us because they persecuted Christ. They will hate us because they hate the one who's in us. So David begins this psalm by praying to God for vindication. In other words, he's asking God to go to battle for him, to contend for him. Let's look at verses 1 to 3. It starts off saying, A psalm of David. Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of buckler and shield and rise up for my help. Draw also the spear and the battle axe to meet those who pursue me. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Now the language that David uses right off the bat here invokes really two images. There's the image of a courtroom and there's the image of a battlefield. So the language is both legal and it's sort of militaristic in nature. But David presents his request uh, right off the bat in verse 1. Sometimes he, he, he focuses on the attributes of God or, or something great about God or something that God has done before he goes into presenting his request. But this, in this psalm, he presents his request just right away, asking God to contend to contend with those who were contending with David. The word contend is the word that would be used of a defense attorney in a courtroom who, who's called to argue a case on another person's behalf. But this isn't just a war of words that's going on here. These people are slandering David. These people are fighting with David. And thus David also asks God to fight back for him. So David pleads with God right away. He pleads with God to take hold of buckler and shield, spear and battle axe. Now, maybe you're like me. Uh, when I looked at this psalm this week and I saw the word buckler, I thought, what is that? Uh, that that's not something that we really uh, talk about. That's not a, a word that I think I've ever heard used before. Uh, it, it's basically a, a, a large shield. It's, there, you've got your regular shield, but then you've got a shield that's bigger than your average shield. So David is calling for God to get dressed and prepared to go to war on David's behalf, to put on armor and to fight those who are afflicting David in a physical sense. The shield and buckler are defensive weapons, the spear and the axe are offensive weapons. And you might be thinking, wait a minute, God goes on the offensive? Yes. Yes, He does. You might not think of God as a warrior on a battlefield. You might not think of God as the type that would do that. Maybe you picture God as some kind of cosmic Santa Claus who just passively watches the world and, and laughs with a you know kind of a jolly chuckle as he sits on his throne. But we're talking about the same God who is described as a warrior in many places in Scripture. Exodus 15.3 says, The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is His name. Translated more literally, Yahweh is a warrior. Yahweh is His name. 
The Lord is described this way in Isaiah chapter 59, verse 17, where Isaiah writes, He put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head, and he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle. That's an image of God going to war on behalf of his people. David recognized that there was a spiritual side to this physical battle that he was facing. And so what he's doing here is he is summoning heaven's greatest warrior to intervene on his behalf. What he is longing to hear from God are the words, I am your salvation. It's what he wants to hear in this moment. It's what he needs to be reminded of in this moment. To hear these words would bring him relief in the midst of this terrible and violent affliction that he was contending with. He didn't want to fight the battle alone. He didn't want to face his afflictions and his oppositions in his own strength. He knew that if God would contend for him, victory was sure. And he wants to hear God say, I am your salvation. That's the best desire in the world. The worst desire in the world is to desire to be your own salvation. Because you'll never be. Salvation is only found in the Lord. Salvation is entirely from God. The statement that David makes at the end of verse 3, say to my soul, I am your salvation, it indicates that David, as he's facing these afflictions and this opposition, it indicates that he was struggling with doubts and needing reassurance. Do we ever need that? All the time. Every day we need that. We often do that same thing that he was doing in the midst of trials and afflictions, don't we? We often struggle with, with doubt. We, we need reassurance. We need encouragement. But he knew what was going to lay his doubts to rest. He knew where to find comfort in the midst of his afflictions. He knew that that comfort and assurance was found in God's words. If God can create the world with the power of His Word, then what trouble is it for Him to give us comfort with His Word? If God can level mountains and cast them into the sea with a simple command, then what army could possibly resist Him? What fortress could stand against Him? If God is with us and for us, who can be against us? That's the question that Paul asks in Romans chapter 8. And the obvious answer is, nobody. If God's for us, nobody can stand against us. Because nobody can stand against God. In the next section, David pleads with God to act against those who afflict him unjustly. Look at verses 4 to 8 with me. He writes, Let those be ashamed and dishonored who seek my life. Let those be turned back and humiliated who devise evil against me. Let them be like shafts before the wind, with the angel of the Lord driving them on. Let their way be dark and slippery, with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. For without cause they hid their net for me. Without cause they dug a pit for my soul. Let destruction come upon him unawares, and let the net which he hid catch himself. Into that very destruction let him fall. 
as David is praying for God to act. He is praying for the destruction of his enemies. He, and he's requesting that God go on the offensive against those who oppose him. But look at all the requests that he lays out before God. In fact, in just these five verses that we're looking at right here, there's a noticeable repetition. There's one word that keeps being repeated. Do you see it? It marks each one of these requests. The word is let. So first David says, let those be ashamed who dishonor, and dishonored who seek my life. Throughout the Psalms, uh, you, you see this this phrase be put to shame when uh, when the psalmists are speaking of their enemies the idea of being ashamed or or put to shame involves having one's efforts fail so thoroughly as to render them futile to begin with in other words david is asking god to render their plans against him powerless he's asking for god to humble and maybe even humiliate his foes and that sentiment is also echoed in the second request that David makes. He says, let those be turned back and humiliated who devise evil against me. So notice that he's not praying for their death, per se. He's simply desiring to have them turned away. He wants to be left alone, to be at peace with these people. Third, David prays, let them be like chaff before the wind, with the angel of the Lord driving them on. Now what's interesting here is that David requests that the angel of the Lord be the one to scatter them like chaff in the wind. If you remember our lesson on Psalm 34 last month, the angel of the Lord, whenever we see that phrase or that title used in the Old Testament, it is almost always a reference to Jesus. It's Jesus in pre-incarnate form, pre-taking on human flesh as Jesus. Uh, he, he appears in the Old Testament as the angel of the Lord. And the reason we know this, just as a quick reminder, is that often the angel of the Lord receives worship, which no angel ever does. Uh, the, the angel of the Lord uh, takes references to God as himself. And sometimes the, the words Lord or God and angel of the Lord are used interchangeably, as we see here. But what makes this interesting is that there are only two references to the angel of the Lord in all of the Psalms. And they're found right here in this one and in the previous one, Psalm 34, which has led a lot of people to believe that maybe they were uh, two parts of the same psalm. Uh, but at least uh, Psalms 34 and 35 are, are probably intended to accompany one another. After all, David was facing trouble in Psalm 34 as well. They're both prayers for deliverance in the presence of imminent danger. But what, what we need to see here, uh, what's worth noting here, is the fact that David is asking the Lord to act, but he's also asking the angel of the Lord to act. So which one is it? The implication is that they are one and the same. Uh, the Jesus that a lot of professing Christians believe in is just a complete pacifist. He would never go to war. He would never 
hurt anybody. Uh, Christians who believe in, it, in that type of Jesus draw attention to the fact that Jesus instructed His followers to do things like turn the other cheek. Uh, that He didn't seek any type of vengeance, at least not immediate vengeance, when the Jewish leaders did wrong to Him. Uh, he prayed for the forgiveness of those who were nailing Him to the cross. But the Jesus who came as the Lamb of God 2,000 years ago will be coming back as a lion. Revelation chapter 19, verse 15 says of him when he returns, from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. That Jesus is not purely a pacifist. That Jesus has a breaking point where there's a point for just wrath, which he will execute. The day will come when all of the nations will fear this angel of the Lord, Jesus Christ. The wise will fear Him and they will serve Him now, but one day, even those who don't, they will join with those who do and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You can hide behind a wall. You can hide in a fortress from the wind. But there is no place to take refuge. There is no place to find rest when you're being pursued by the angel of the Lord. Fourth, David prays, let their way be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. The imagery here is great. Because if you're going to run away, from something. If you're being chased and you're trying to get away, there are at least two things that you might find very helpful. First, that you would have light in order to see exactly where you're going. And second, that your feet would move swiftly upon the ground. What David is praying, however, is that his enemies will have neither of those things. In fact, he's praying for the opposite. He prays that instead of them having light to see where they're going, that they will be surrounded by darkness. He prays that instead of their feet gaining traction as they move quickly across the land, uh, that their feet will struggle to get any traction at all. All of this imagery is describing God's inescapable wrath. Nobody can run from it. Nobody can hide from it. There will come a day when people are begging mountains to fall on them to escape God's wrath because they can't outrun it. People spend their entire lives, nevertheless, trying to run away from God's holy and just wrath. But the point here is that doing so is in vain. God's wrath is the just and righteous outpouring of judgment by God against sin. And so really what David is praying here for here is justice. And he knows that God's justice is perfect. People may try to pretend that sin has no consequences, that it's just an inconsequential thing, but the reality is that sin always has a consequence. Every sin has a consequence, either here in this life or in eternity or both. And so David is praying that their sin against him would not be inconsequential, that it would have real consequences. David's fifth prayer his fifth petition, is let destruction come upon him unawares. 
And this is linked to the sixth and final petition in this section where he says, let the net which he hid catch himself. Into that very destruction let him fall. In other words, David is not only praying for their plans to completely fall apart, to completely fail, but what he's praying is that their plans would backfire on them. He prays that they would be destroyed, in other words, by their own devices. It's a prayer for what we might call, in English, we have a colloquialism for it, we call it poetic justice where their plans just backfire. What they wanted to happen to David actually ends up happening to them. But let me say this. If, like David, you know that the Lord is on your side, and if you are confident in His sovereign judgment against evildoers, either in this life or in eternity to come, you know that sooner or later, in one way or another, those who do you wrong and you will have people who do you wrong, they're eventually going to have consequences for it. That's a hope that we as Christians, as Bible-believing Christians have. That's, That's a promise that we can cling to. But when you look at the world around us, there's another type of justice that they're longing for. It's not a perfect justice. It's a very corrupted justice. And that's a big word these days. Justice, justice, justice. Look at the world around us and look at how they warp and destroy a holy concept like justice. The mob riots, if a person doesn't get the sentence that they were hoping for, that they were demanding and insisting upon. They'll claim to desire justice for somebody who was wronged as they burn cities down and cause harm to all kinds of innocent people. Bodily harm, financial harm, all kinds of harm. And they think that's about justice. Justice doesn't involve hurting or harming somebody who's innocent. This is why the Christian never ever endorses or participates in such things. Because we know that in the end, there are no evil deeds that will go unpunished. There are no sins committed against God's people or against God in general or whatever that will be ultimately inconsequential. No, every sin has a consequence, either here or in eternity. But only God, we know this, only God is capable of carrying out perfect justice and he promises us that he will so whether we get to witness justice carried out or not by our courts we know that it will be carried out in god's courts god will execute perfect justice one day and you know what that means it means we don't need to see justice carried out Hear me out. I'm not saying that justice isn't important. It's very important. But if we don't see it, we can live knowing that it will be carried out by God. It's good to desire justice in our system. We we should desire justice in our court system. But if we don't get to see it with our own eyes, we can press on, we can carry on knowing that God will execute perfect justice. We know that God will render what He has promised. Paul said this to the church in Rome in his day. He said, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. 
Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's what he writes in Romans chapter 12, verses 19 to 21. The temptation there is to be overcome by evil. And that's what we've seen a lot of Christians even capitulate to, give in to, in the last year with the riots that we saw last year. They were overcome by evil, justifying burning down businesses and neighborhoods of innocent people in the name of justice for somebody that was completely unrelated to those people who had their homes and businesses burned down. Now here's where we get to consider kind of a tough question. When Paul wrote that in Romans chapter 12, was he saying that we shouldn't be like David? Was he saying that we should not pray like David? Was he saying that we shouldn't pray for God to act against our enemies? Now some people would say, yes. Yes, the Bible is pitting Paul against David. But I would strongly advise against pitting one part of the Bible or one person in the Bible against another. We don't want to say something like, well, you know, be like Paul when it comes to this issue, but be like David when it comes to this issue. We can't say that the New Testament gives us a better example to follow than the Old Testament did. No, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, reproof, and correction, and training in righteousness. All Scripture. What did Paul have in mind when he said that? He had the Old Testament in mind. He had the Old Testament in mind. We know that the righteous one day, the New Testament tells us that the righteous one day will rejoice over the destruction of Babylon. You know that, right? That the righteous in heaven are going to celebrate when God's wrath is poured out against His enemies. Revelation chapter 18, verse 20 records the destruction of God's enemies and the rally cry, Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgments for you against her. In Revelation 19.3, we see that the countless multitudes in heaven are rejoicing upon Babylon's destruction, crying out, Hallelujah! Her smoke rises up forever and ever. That's the New Testament. That's the New Testament. That's what's going to happen in heaven. That's what we're going to see happen. God will be glorified in His grace upon the elect, and He will be glorified in His wrath upon Babylon. So does this mean that we can pray like David did? That's a good question. James Montgomery Boyce gives us a helpful response to this question. He says this, he writes, quote, What we need is a balanced view of this subject, tempered by knowledge of our own sin and frequent hypocrisy. And he goes on to add this, writing, 
In my judgment, the chief thing is to note that in Psalms 7, 35, 69, and 109, David is not writing as a private citizen, but as the king and judge of Israel. The judgment he calls for is a righteous judgment upon those who, by opposing him, oppose God and godliness. End quote. Now, as an individual, if we look at David's life, if we see the attitude that he had toward those who even sought to kill him, we know that David was a person who was very gracious. He was very quick to forgive. He was not known for carrying out justice himself, even when the opportunity presented itself. When King Saul, for example, was chasing after him, pursuing him. He was going to kill David because David was appointed the next king of Israel. And so Saul is chasing after him. David's running for his life. Uh, David fled instead of fighting. But when he had a chance to kill Saul as Saul was taking a potty break while he pursued David, he refused. David refused to take matters into his own hands by taking Saul's life. So what we should understand about Psalm 35 is that David isn't praying this for himself. He's not, this isn't a selfish or self-serving prayer. This isn't about him having some kind of personal gain. He's praying that God may be glorified in His perfect holy justice. So can you ask God to deal with those who oppose you because they oppose Him? Yes, you can ask God to deal with them. The, the battle belongs to the Lord. Insofar as it depends on you, Paul said, be at peace with everyone. As an individual, that was consistently exemplified in David's life. Leave room for the wrath of God. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Oppose evil, yes. Stand against evil, yes. But you have to do so in a way that also keeps your heart pure. And so pray that God would pour out His grace upon those who do evil against you. Again, what did Jesus pray on the cross for those who were nailing Him to the cross? Father, forgive them. He's praying for God to deal with them, but in a gracious way. If they will not be converted, you can certainly pray for temporal justice to be served. Should, should Christians pray for tyrants like Adolf Hitler or Joseph Stalin or Mao Zedong or, and others? Can we pray for them to be overthrown when they're perpetuating great evil around the world? That is perfectly acceptable as long as you are doing so with an awareness of your own sins. And you might even tack on some requests for forgiveness for the sins of our own country, knowing that there is only one perfect kingdom. And it's not this one. It's heaven. That's the balance that we need. It's the balance that David exemplified. Knowing that God's perfect will will be done, David continues in verses 9 and 10 as he vows to worship the Lord. Psalm 35, verses 9 and 10. He says, And my soul shall rejoice in the Lord. 
It shall exult in His salvation. All my bones will say, Lord, who is like You? Who delivers the afflicted from Him who is too strong for Him? And the afflicted and the needy from Him who robs Him? So David is pleading. He's been pleading his case as if he's in a courtroom. He's presented uh, all this evidence and now he's ready to worship. And he comes to this pinnacle where he says, Who is like God? Who is like our God? Perfect in all of His ways. Glorified by the gracious outpouring of His mercy. Glorified by the just outpouring of His wrath. A deliverer to those who are afflicted. Who is like that? Who is like our God? It's a rhetorical question. The answer, obviously, is nobody. There's nobody like our God. Nobody is like Him. If you are in Christ, you know that God has already delivered you from your worst enemy, from the enemy of your soul. He's delivered you from your own desires. He's delivered you from His wrath. He's delivered you from the devil. And this is where you find your victory. Your soul should exalt in the salvation that He's granted you. In the words of Charles Spurgeon, he said, quote, We do not triumph in the destruction of others, but in the salvation given to us of God. End quote. And so as David continues, he pleads his case once again before the Lord. It's almost like David is kind of reviewing all the events in his mind, searching his own heart as he recalls the events that have led him to this point in his life. Let's continue looking at verses 11 to 18. He says, malicious witnesses rise up. They ask me of things that I do not know. They repay me evil for good to the bereavement of my soul. But as for me, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled my soul with fasting, and my prayer kept returning to my bosom. I went about as though it were my friend or brother. I bowed down mourning as one who sorrows for a mother. But at my stumbling, they rejoiced and gathered themselves together. The smiters whom I did not know gathered together against me. They slandered me without ceasing. Like godless jesters at a feast, they gnashed at me with their teeth. Lord, how long will you look on? Rescue my soul from their ravages, my only life from the lions. I will give you thanks in the great congregation. I will praise you among a mighty throng. So once again, David goes back to kind of arguing or pleading his case, recalling the events as if he's in a courtroom. He's unfolding the evidence piece by piece. He points out the charity that he has exercised toward his foes. That while they were sick, what did he do? He fasted. And he prayed for their recovery instead of praying for their destruction, instead of rejoicing over their condition. You see the balance he has here? He treated them like a brother or a friend in their moment of weakness and vulnerability rather than treating them like an enemy and taking advantage of the fact that they were impaired and weak. But did they do the same to him in return? Nope. No. When David was vulnerable, 
when David was weak, they rejoiced in his stumbling and they slandered him relentlessly. While David clearly did everything he could to repay good for their evil, they repaid evil for his good. They mocked him and they ridiculed him relentlessly. The point that David's testimony is making here is that he was innocent of any wrongdoing. He had always done the right and godly thing. He searched his heart. He's recalled his actions and his attitudes toward his enemies. And he knows that no charge that's being levied against him is going to stand. He's an innocent man. He knows it. David's personal recollection of the situation leads him to cry out again to the Lord, asking, Lord, how long will you look on? Can you relate to that? I think we all can relate to that type of feeling to some extent. We have an idea of when God should act and how God should act, but that doesn't always align with what God is planning for when and how He will act. In fact, our thoughts are rarely, maybe even accidentally, similar to God's thoughts, if anything. And our timeline, when we think things should be done, is rarely, almost never the same as God's timeline. We, like David, have this tendency to feel like God is just being passive about our situation. Like He's just feeling indifferent. He couldn't care less because He's not doing anything, is how we're inclined or tempted to think when things are going wrong when we're suffering an injustice or an affliction. And so David simply calls on God to rescue him from these lions. And he vows to worship God. To give God all the glory for His justification, for His deliverance. Friends, we live in very difficult times. It often feels, uh, if, if you ever watch the news or open social media, it feels like the world has just lost their minds and that new levels of depravity, new levels of wickedness are, are being reached every day. And it kind of leaves us feeling vulnerable. It, it kind of leaves us feeling like we're being afflicted. The answer is to do what David has done here. Search your heart. And call out to God. Cry out to God when you feel that way. Because God is neither passive nor indifferent to your afflictions. Nobody, no Christian, can truly say, God doesn't care that I am feeling afflicted. That's how our feelings feel. That's what our feelings tell us. But that's not what God's Word says. God is not indifferent to your suffering. He's not uncaring about your afflictions. God is neither of those things. And for reasons that you may not understand until you're safely in glory and in heaven's gates, He has even ordained your afflictions. He has ordained every affliction that you endure. And He's done so not to punish you, but He's done it because He loves you. He's done it for your own good, for your growth in Christ's likeness. Is it too much of a stretch of the imagination to, to think that God has ordained your afflictions, your darkest and deepest valleys, so that you would draw ever nearer to Him? Having laid out 
the case against his foes. David once again makes several requests of God. First, again, he prays for vindication. Let's look at verses 19 to 22. David writes, Do not let those who are wrongly, wrongfully my enemies rejoice over me, nor let those who hate me without cause wink maliciously. For they do not speak peace, but they devise deceitful words against those who are quiet in the land. They opened their mouth wide against me. They said, Aha, aha, our eyes have seen it. You have seen it, O Lord. Do not keep silent, O Lord. Do not be far from me. Now earlier we saw that David had made six requests, uh, each of which started with the word let, but these requests are made in the negative. He's making requests to not let things happen. Uh, Do not let those who are wrongfully my enemies rejoice over me. They had no reason to be David's enemies. He hadn't done anything wrong to them. They hated him because they hated the God that he served. They opposed him wrongfully, unjustly. And so David prays that they would not have an opportunity to rejoice over him. That is, if, if this was an attempt to unseat David as Israel's king and judge, as this kind of suggests, David's prayer is that their coup would fail. Not for David's sake, but for the sake of God's glory. Second, he prays that God would not let those who hate me without cause wink maliciously. Which, in our culture, makes absolutely no sense. I get that. But in the ancient world, the wink of an eye was often an act of malice. It was often a sign of, of trouble or, or a conspiracy, a plan against somebody. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 10 says, He who winks the eye causes trouble. It was how people could communicate with each other from one side of the room to the other without speaking if there was a conspiracy where both people needed to act at the same time. The wink was the green light. That was the signal to go. So these enemies, unlike David, were neither seeking nor speaking peace. Rather, they're lying. They're they're slandering David maliciously. And, And who does David call in to the courtroom as his star witness here. He calls in God Himself. In verse 22, he says, You have seen it, O Lord. Do not keep silent. O Lord, do not be far from me. His enemies are slandering Him. His enemies are claiming that they saw David do something something wrong. But David knows that God saw whatever they're claiming they saw. And God knew that David was an innocent man. God's attributes are such a great comfort. Study God's attributes, friends. God's omniscience, the fact that He knows all things, that's a great comfort to an innocent person who's being charged unjustly. God's omnipotence, His his all-powerfulness, and His justice give us a great deal of comfort when we're confronted by slanderous lies. Not only does God see Not only does God know and He's aware, but He's able to do something because He is omniscient and omnipotent and perfectly just in all of His ways. So He's able to do something, the right thing about it. In times like these, it is such a good thing to know and to study and to review the attributes 
of God. They ensure us and they remind us of the answer to Abraham's proverbial question when he asked, shall not the judge of the earth deal justly? And the answer, because of God's attributes, the answer to that question is always yes. Yes, the judge of the earth will always deal justly. He will always do what is good. He will always do what is right. David's prayer concludes with a plea for God to defend him and to go on the offensive against his enemies. Let's look at verses 23 to 28. David writes, Stir up yourself and awake to my right and to my cause, my Lord and my, my God and my Lord. Judge me, O Lord my God, according to your righteousness, and do not let them rejoice over me. Do not let them say in their heart, Aha, our desire. Do not let them say, We have swallowed him up. Let those be ashamed and humiliated altogether who rejoice at my distress. Let those be clothed with shame and dishonor who magnify themselves over me. Let them shout for joy and rejoice who favor my vindication. And let them say continually, The Lord be magnified who delights in the prosperity of His servant. And my tongue shall declare Your righteousness and Your praise all day long. So there are some people who are rejoicing who shouldn't be. And there are some people who weren't rejoicing who will rejoice when God acts. David's prayers and his petitions here are that God's judgment against his foes would match the evil actions of the accusers in such a way that it would magnify and glorify God. He asks that the destruction that they sought for David would result in their own destruction. Knowing that God can do this. Knowing that God has heard him and that God cares about things like injustice and wickedness and afflictions in this world. David concludes, as he already has twice in this psalm, by declaring his intention, which is the same as the response will be of everyone who sees the evil being perpetrated by David's foes. And that intention is to praise the Lord. To praise the Lord when justice is served, when God's servant is vindicated. As we consider the ways that this psalm can be applied to our own lives and our own times here in uh, 21st century America, we have to do so while remembering that there is only one truly faithful, righteous servant in all of human history, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And if there was ever anybody who knew what it was like to be mocked and unjustly accused and slandered maliciously, it was Him. If anyone ever suffered unjust affliction, it was Jesus. He was just in all of His ways. And what did the world do in response to that? They hated Him. And they nailed Him to a cross. Like David, Jesus had many enemies who would set snares and traps for Him. He had false witnesses who would slander Him and lie about Him. Even though He only did good toward them, they only perpetrated evil constantly against Him in return. 
They rejoiced at his arrest. They mocked him as he was scourged by Roman soldiers. They mocked and they reviled him at every single turn. Like David, Jesus knew what it was like to be hated and scorned, not only mercilessly, but wrongly, unjustly. Now, we've already considered the warning that Jesus gave his disciples. In John chapter 15, verses 18 to 20, when he warned them of the trouble that they would face in this world. Why? Because they belong to him, because of their love and devotion to him. But listen carefully to what he said, to what Jesus said as he continued. He says this in John 15, 21. He says, But all these things they do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. Down in verse 24, he says, If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sin. But now they have both seen and hated me and my Father as well. Verse 25, But they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. Did you catch that last part? They hated him without a cause. Now, if you look at the NASB, if that's the version that you're following along in, you'll see that uh, the line, they hated me without a cause, is in all capital letters, which indicates that that is a quote from the Old Testament. Uh, In fact, it's probably a quote from Psalm 35. Uh, So we need to see that Psalm 35, in so many ways, points us to Jesus. In so many ways, it foreshadows what Jesus would endure at the hands of His enemies. But we need to know more than that. We need to know more than the fact that this is foreshadowing Jesus. We need to know why Jesus warned His disciples that they would experience the same treatment that He did. Why did it matter so much that Jesus would bring it up almost as His final words to them before His death? And the answer is the first words that we see in the next chapter. In 16, chapter 16, verse 1, Jesus says this there. He says, These words I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. That word stumbling is scandalizo, which is where we get our word scandal from. It's the word that Peter used. In Mark chapter 14, verse 29, when he said, even though all may fall away, scandalizo, even though all may fall away, I will not. It refers to apostasy. It's a word that refers to not just stumbling, but falling away from the faith. In other words, Jesus spoke these words. He gave them this warning. He wanted them to know what they would face. He wanted them to be warned about the injustice and the mockery and the hatred that they would face so that when it happened, so that when times were hard, so that when they faced affliction at the hands of the world, they would endure in their faith. They would not lose hope in God or in Christ. That night, the night that he spoke those words, the wicked seemed to have the final say and the last word. But as the serpent bit the heel, the heel crushed the serpent's head. When evil seemed to have won the day, it suffered its greatest defeat. That defeat was announced publicly On Sunday morning, as Jesus rose triumphantly from the grave, victorious over sin, victorious over the last enemy, death. 
vindicated by the Father. Friends, as you are being conformed to Jesus' image, as you are growing in Christ's likeness, as He promises, you will be hated by the world, just like He was. But God vindicated Jesus, and He will, either now or in glory, vindicate His people. So what you need to do when times get hard, what you need to do when you face afflictions that you feel like you can't press through, you just need to hang on. Press forward. Remember the promises of God. Set your mind on the attributes of God. Remember who He is and what He has promised to do. For this light, momentary affliction, Paul says, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. It's from 2 Corinthians 4.17. In other words, the best is yet to come. And affliction has a way of setting our minds on God. Quickening our pace to heaven. Victory and vindication are certain. God always vindicates His own. And He does so in His perfect timing. So, Hang on. Press forward. I leave you with two thoughts. First of all, if you have never repented and believed in Jesus, you must be warned today that none of these promises of vindication or comfort or any of these things apply to you. And so I urge you, to repent and to believe in Jesus today because these promises are for those who are in Christ. Stop hardening your heart against Him. Whatever you have done, turn away from your sin and believe in Jesus as your only hope of being reconciled with God and you will be saved. Secondly, if you have believed in Jesus, if you've already done that, and if you are in Him, if you are in Christ, you have every reason, just like David here, who's not out of his afflictions by the time the psalm ends, you have every reason, just like he does, to thank him and to praise him, not only in your afflictions, but for your afflictions. We must not seek vengeance ourselves upon those who afflict us and who assail us. Rather, use your afflictions as a reminder to draw near to God, asking Him to vindicate us, remembering that even Jesus Himself faced times of severe affliction. He is worthy of your praise. Whether you are out of your affliction or not, and He has ordained your affliction for the holy purpose of drawing you near to Himself. What grace! What grace! Praise the Lord even for your afflictions. Let's pray. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. And we thank You for the comfort that we derive from Your Word. Lord, we confess that there are so many afflictions in this world, that there are so many trials and struggles that we go through. And we confess to You that there are times when we even struggle with things like assurance and your love. 
But we thank You that You proved Your love by sending Your only Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to reconcile us to Yourself. And so, help us, O Lord, in our times of affliction, in our times of hardship, in the midst of our trials. Teach us, O Lord, to look to the cross where we are assured of Your love, where we are assured of our redemption in Christ, where we are assured that the penalty for our sins was paid. We thank You for these things, O Lord. And we pray that we would live our lives in light of them for the glory of Christ. In His name we pray. Amen.